Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Rock and roll, hip hop. You know, lifestyles require aggression. They require uh, testosterone. They require uh, I don't give a fuck attitude. And when you reach a certain age, you know, you have to kind of embrace the fact that you really do give a fuck, you know. And so it's kind of hard sometimes to rationalize your own place in this where you know it's a youth-driven movement, but I'm not so much of a youth anymore. What's up, y'all? This is Tim Heineke. Welcome to the library. What you just heard was a scene from a new documentary called Adult Rappers by Paul Inacino. In the film, Paul explores what happens to rappers when they simply grow up, when a boy becomes a man, when a girl becomes a woman. How do they continue to stay relevant? He interviews people like Master Ace, R.A. the Rugged Man, Slug, J-Zone, Blueprint, and the list goes on. I sat down with Paul a few weeks ago and asked him what reaction did he get when he first approach people about the project you know well the two things happen people that we reach out to either go i'm not interested you know i'm not an adult rapper because they are you know in their minds the connotation is like that you're over the hill and that's not really the point so the other side of it um the really positive side is you get a lot of heads that say wow thank you it's about time and um and that comes from rappers and fans alike, and I think that's why there's a lot of chatter around this idea now, um, and, and it's lucky for us, because, um, you know, with films and stuff, it's or an album, it's so much about timing. And like you said, I think the timing is right. I think there's a lot of people, there's a lot of us sort of Gen Xers that are in a stage in their lives where they're, like, questioning if it's okay that they're still so into our friend Jay Zone, like, is it still okay that you, that you, you know, are cruising in your car bumping Tim Dog tapes? <laughs> we all have our varying degrees of that, <clears throat> that experience. So I think you're right. I mean, I think we tapped into something that people are eager to, to talk about. And it's also in a time when there's just so many, there's so many rappers. I mean, there are so many fucking rappers. And and and, it, and we we're in this you know the the genre is still so young, and obviously continuing to evolve. And now, I mean, you could say that there there already was an old guard in the time when when I don't know how you how old you are, but when when we were coming up, the guys that we were really into, obviously there was an old guard, you know, in the the, the late seventies, early eighties types cats. Um, but there's such a bigger <laughs> old guard now from the golden era on into the 90s of, of independent. That's a lot of guys and gals. And now there seems to be this division that's really becoming more um, visible. 
And it's another thing that's interesting that it's happening while we're making this film, the things like the Lupe fiasco, Pete Rock situation, or or Mac Miller and Lord Finesse. And, you know, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a struggle internally within the genre that I think is totally natural, and it's part of the evolution of the music. Um, but it's giving birth to some of these kind of unfortunate situations. So I want to go back. You uh, You mentioned that people did not want to be labeled as a, an adult rapper. Is that the same connotation that people you know, feel when um, you try to label them as a political rapper? Um, that's a good question. I think, I think there's, when people have, you know, it's easier now for me when I was first approaching people, <clears throat> the, um, I think the title comes off as a little, you know, it can come off as a, as a negative and as a little, like, you know, tongue-in-cheek and cute. Um, I mean, that's by design. But without anything to support it, the, you know, it can feel risky to someone who's like, I don't know what sort of light they're going to shine on me and, and my career. And now that we have a, we've got some material in the can and we cut the trailer, it's a lot easier of a sell for people that feel the same way. Um, but it's a double-edged sword. Like I said, yeah, there are some people that feel like, um, even though they are in their late 30s and early 40s, that that is not a label they want anywhere near them. They just, you know, um, and I think that's inherent in the music. We talk about it a lot. In the film, it's a youth music. It always has been. It's a youth-driven music. Um, but now we're in a time where there's so many guys that have really vibrant, you know, artistic um they're in a really great place creatively, so why would they stop making their art? I totally understand that. So it's it raises the question of, is there going to be sort of a separation generationally? You know, is there this music that's made for grown folks that's hip-hop? You know, and I think someone like Killer Mike is, is talking about some of those things. Um, certainly Chuck, you know, people that it's more about the message um, and it's not made for kids, and then there's going to always be a new guard, and there's going to be, you know, the the Earl Sweatshirts and Mac Millers and um, Wiz Khalifa, although I would never put Earl in, in those guys' camp. I think he's, a, like, from another planet, um, and I really enjoy him. But, you know, there's, there's music that's made for kids. There always will be. Um, and I just think hip-hop is having a little bit of an identity crisis because it's struggling with that generational gap. So, Paul, how do you see hip-hop moving forward? Do you think there's a new genre of hip-hop in the works? What's the state of hip-hop right now? It's interesting. I think <clears throat> I think the music, you know, I always go back to this idea that the music is just so young. I mean, it's certainly one of the, along with jazz, you know, one of the few truly American genres of music. And... It's the youngest, so it's it's too early to tell. Um, but I think what we're seeing happening is there's a lot of guys and girls and people that are just so passionate about this this brand of music and and being an artist that they're exploring new avenues with their art. And it's not going to be. I think what's happening is you're seeing more and more people that just rhyming over a beat doesn't do it for them anymore. And same goes for the audience. You know, it's like, okay, we had a lot of people that tried to sort of do, you know, like nouveau, boom bap era stuff and try to reinvent that. And 
um, and I, you know, I'm not going to hate on that, but there's a lot of people that that's not a, it's not enough for them, you know. So there's other people, I think, like the LPs of the world, that are pushing the music forward into places that you wouldn't, you know, um, a lot of people wouldn't probably dare to go. Uh, Lewis Logic is another great example. He's in the film. And I, I saw his show, and I was blown away by the things that he's incorporated um, into his show that, you know, 10 years ago people would have laughed the guy off stage. And he admits that, you know, but it just wasn't enough for him anymore to just get up there and and spit the, the 12 inches that everybody knows, you know, and, and tell people when to put their hands or up or not, <laughs> you know? Like he's, he's like, I just, it wasn't enough for me, so... The guy, uh, like, retreated from music and, and studied theory and learned the piano. And it, it's really interesting to see cats like that who were certainly, like, very well known as kind of punchline battle dudes um, explore all these new avenues musically. And I think you're going to see more and more of that. In your film, Adult Rappers, you speak to, to, to many, many people. I mean, you speak to Blockhead, you speak to uh, DJ S1, J-Zone. So I'm just wondering, who had the toughest story in terms of, you know, once being relevant, now totally off the map? Are all of them still rapping? What other careers have they fallen into? Um, any heartbreaking stories? You know, what did you get into with them? Yeah, I mean, we've... Unfortunately, there's a lot of those stories that I haven't even had the heart to, to kind of touch. And some of them are people that we know very closely. And it just... Um, I think it could make for some great film, for sure. But I, I don't. I just it makes me feel not right about going after some of those really tough stories. Um, and you know maybe our film will suffer, but I just think it hits a little too close to home and feels a little um, opportunistic. So we've kind of steered away from the really hard luck stuff. Um, that being said, there's a lot of guys, and the the, the main one um, that we've come across is J-Zone. And by way of, I met him after we started in like the second or third round of interviews. And his he was just getting ready to, to release his book. So I met him, and I interviewed him, and, and really loved him. And he was super honest, and but he was in a place where he was like, I'm, you know, I had my time, and I'm done with this rap shit, and I'm moving on. And then I read his book, and it was—I mean, it was—it was another one of those kind of watershed moments. His book parallels so many of the themes that we talk about in the film. So I really continued to build with him because his story has really sort of stuck out as the the prominent one to tie everybody else to, because he came to this place. You know, a lot of people um, up and down the echelon. You know, the ladder of. of of hip hop fame, no J Zone. What, what, what was your name? It's like J Zone. Yeah, I heard you. You, you're married to Beyonce. And it's like no, 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 that's Jay Z. So you, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's it was. I had my time in like a small niche, but in the grand scheme of things, they're like, well, how come you're working here now? He tells a great story about being backstage with um, with CeeLo and Danger Mouse, and them kind of shaking their heads like, how come people need to know who you are? It's crazy that people don't know you. You know, and he's like, "What the fuck are you telling me? You're CeeLo. <laughs> like, so, um, you know, and he he quit and walked away completely. And he's got some really some some really amazing stories about what what that really looks like for an artist that's got you know giant stacks of product 
that are sitting in a warehouse and you get a phone call and the warehouse says you either got to come pick this stuff up or we're destroying it so you have to you need to sign on the dotted line to say you're okay with us incinerating this stuff i mean that is for a musician that's got to be like watching somebody kill your kids you know um and that is the kind of stuff that he was very eager to share and he was the one who really was like um i want to help demystify all this stuff because people need to know what a quote unquote career in the in the music business and a career as a rapper really means um and it ends it ends for most guys so uh if you get into a certain level you need to understand um what that means and and it was fortuitous for us that he was willing to be so honest about it and um so the interesting thing like i said is we met him very early on and and he wrote the book which was clearly a catharsis for him and sort of felt like he moved on and then found himself kind of struggling with like i don't know am, am i am i too old to just walk away from this stuff is it really is it realistic for me to go out into the world now and dust off the resume and you know get into the educational system um and then he's kind of come around full circle to a place where he's really comfortable with um the fact that he's an artist that he's a really talented dude in a lot of ways and you know music doesn't have to be his job but it certainly is his passion so he's okay with like i have to figure out a way to pay the rent but i'm going to be happy doing what i like musically and I, and that doesn't mean trying to produce something that's going to make me my money you know so um we were just out of his house yesterday he's he's learning the drums and um he's just he was bopping around his studio like um a lot of us probably remember ourselves at like 16 17 18 you know practicing a routine with 45s um which is so hard and then you know throwing on Lou Donaldson and in the headphones and and practicing his drums and he's pretty accomplished for someone who's only been drumming for a few months and playing me some new beats and so it was it was cool you could see that he was in a good place with it um and i think that's kind of the the inspiring side of what we've discovered is it's not you know there's certainly a, a melancholy element to this whole thing but i think what ultimately i'm finding with a lot of my friends is they're coming to a place where this is just a such a big part of who I am. It's something that will always be there, whether I'm someone who does this for a living or not, you know, and and that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. At the beginning of every class, I'm like, how many of you think you're going to make a living making music? You know, and then they all raise their hand, and I'm like, well, you know, 90% of you were wrong. You know what I'm saying? 5% of you will, but not in the way you think you are, meaning you might be doing jingles, commercials, or doing stuff for other people. And 5% of you might, you know, will probably make it, you know, because it's just that, it's that tough out there, and it's really not, and I have some talented motherfuckers in my class. Like, I got some students that are just, I listened to them, and I was like, I wasn't doing nothing like that when I was 18 years old. It was interesting to talk to, to talk to, um, Slug, uh, we went to Soundset, which is, you know, that's his baby. Um, and he, I love the way he put it. He said, this is my hip-hop 401k. You know, he's created this festival that is not only really successful unto itself, but it's at the heart of it, it's about 
um, he's really created a, a community, you know, and he's super, um, super proud of Minneapolis and, and wants to support those artists, you know, and really create kind of a cultural revolution around music and, and art and food and all those things and make sure that he's helping people from his city do well and give back to the city that helped him do well. Um, so he's got, a, you know, when he feels like he's done getting up on stage and touring, he has that, you know, he has that business. He's certainly an entrepreneur and they have a good, you know, they've built a pretty strong brand. Um, a lot of guys, uh, and I think, you know, by way of Twitter, you see, you can see where there was no fallback plan when you see guys kind of like basically wearing a sandwich board, you know, by way of Twitter to say, hey, I'll come and do a verse on your song or, um, you know, all day long shooting out the email for, you know, uh, requests for anything. You know, I've heard some some sad stories about like appearances in local markets where it's like, hey, can we turn this into a regular thing? The person who who brought this artist in is like, you know, nah, sorry, no. I mean, this is just something I do, you know, once a month or twice a quarter or whatever. So yeah, there's some dudes that are really struggling with what to do next. I didn't understand that it wasn't about the music. I didn't understand that they're marketing you as a personality and marketing you as a person and, and a, a piece of pop culture. I didn't understand that. I thought if your music is great, your song comes out, and the world loves your music because it's great. I thought that's how it works. If the music's great, the world's going to love it. And I knew my music was great, so I thought I was good. I also think you have that weird, you know, it's it's generational, but it's that it was that weird time where there was the, the divergence, you know, with the collapse of the music industry in general. There was a time where there was guys that were of a certain ilk that made a certain amount of money as well and kind of were used to that. And that that money was just, you know, swept out of the industry entirely. You know, budgets for signing artists of all kinds, those are gone. I think it's a struggle for a lot of guys. And there, like I said at the outset, there's just so many rappers. Like how many, how many can... Um, how many can rappers can one planet hold? I don't know. I've done this for a lot of years. My new music especially, like, you know, it's very, like, honest in that way. Like, I've done this for years, you know what I'm saying? This is what I know, and this is what I want to tell you guys about it, you know? And you can look at me as an example of, of if you want to do it or you don't. So do you see, like, any room for some sort of pension plan or something? Like a hip-hop pension plan or something like that? a great idea i mean the other thing is i i certainly don't want to come off in the interview like i'm the guy who has the, all the answers about about hip-hop music i i can only you know sort of um regurgitate what what i've learned from talking to, to all these people um it's one of, yeah it's one of those crazy things but you know hip-hop music being what it is i'm sure they would you know it would find a way to fuck itself up I mean, you just even something like that is doomed to failure um, a lot of it's, you know, it's, it's that personal responsibility thing that I, and I, that's not, um, that's not a knock on rappers alone. That's just people in general. And I think that's another big generation X thing. It was, you know, the struggle between the whole, your, 
people that are kids of baby boomers and being taught the whole, you know, you get married before you're 30 and you get a career and you settle down and you have your kids and everything's fine. And obviously we've seen across the world that that doesn't hold any water. There's a lot of people with no jobs and there's certainly not going to be a whole lot of fallback for a lot of people. Um, but it's it just it just you know it shines a light on how much worse it is for for the people that were brave enough to embrace their art as their sole means of um, making a living you know and now they're in a really tough spot there's I mean the arts are just in such a shitty place in our country right now it's such a bummer so I don't know you know I I think I think just as a not just the hip hop and music culture I think as a as a nation we're in a really tough spot and it's not going to get better <laughs> you know sort of go oh no that makes sense I, i'm one of the cards at amoeba that you that doesn't have any cds in it like that's cool for me uh and i can live with that so as we've been talking we you know you obviously uh you interviewed a lot of artists and one artist that kind of from the you know from eclipse that you sent me that brought you know got my attention was ari the rugged man um can you just tell that kind of what what would that interview was like and kind of some of the good like what you can tell those gems that uh you know he uh he talked about yeah he um uh, we went to his apartment, which is up in Harlem. He had just come off tour um and when you see that shot of him and that he's got one wall of his apartment that's literally floor to ceiling of of b horror movies mostly he's a he's a huge cinema file and um it, you know, whenever you walk into one of those situations, you're sort of like, what are we going to... You don't know what you're going to have to work with. Um, made for an amazing... It was like you couldn't art direct that any better. Um, and we... Shame on us for not just walking in the door with the cameras rolling, because he he's, he isn't a character. He's he's R.A. You know what I mean? It's not, <laughs> it's not like a performance. It's not like this thing that he switches on and off. Like, he is genuinely that guy that you hear on the record. So, I mean, he, the stuff just started flowing out of him immediately. And he's got this great voice that he talks about as well. You know, it's really bassy voice and that is his speaking voice as well. And he's, um, you know, he's been around and he's been in the business for a long time and he's sort of been through all the different avenues from major label to indie over the years. So he's got a lot of great perspective and he's got some amazing stories um everything from i think like the the clip that we sent you talking about his first major label deal um marketing execs deciding they needed to you know they needed to release him and try to fool the public into thinking that he was a black artist mm. which is which is mind-boggling to people now right. but obviously that's you know pre Eminem and pre LP and pre a lot of the the guys that sort of broke through that barrier to get to the point where things are today where you don't it's just people are rappers and they don't think about race and skin color as much or the, um, i mean or or the other argument could be that he uh here's this guy who has major talent and he's white which would make it marketable more to like the i guess you could say the pop you know the, the kind of the pop market part of it you know what I'm saying? yeah for sure for sure i mean, I mean back I, then it Back then, it just sounded. It was still. I think it was still in an era where those major labels were very clear that they were in a world where it was where it was black music, you know, and it wasn't 
like they hadn't even wrapped their heads around the idea that someday, you know, white kids in strip malls would be reciting every rap lyric they could get their hands on. Right. And they just had this guy that they knew was making good music and was talented and was unique and had this great voice, but they were, you know, essentially from his perspective were like, your voice sounds black, so let's let's not go there. Let's not, like, mess with that that racial barrier yet. And you know they weren't going to put his face on any of the on any of the packaging. They're just going to release the record and see how it did. And if it did well, then be like, oh well, here he is, you know. And he was like completely rejected that. Um, so wild. It sounds like it could be like one of those Motown era stories, you know. Yeah. It was flipped the other way, right. um, or like that De La what's that De La Soul skit about? Um, from Balloon Mind State about crossing over. Why are niggas always crossing over something, huh? What's the matter, huh? They can accept our music as long as they can't see our faces. Tell me something, huh? How many never crossed over to us, huh? I've never seen five niggas or elves press the album cover. So, I mean, so was it like their plan was that if they, they wouldn't even... So... With Ari, at first, they, the, 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 even thinking about doing a concert for him was just out of the question. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this was like a, this was a true, you know, like a tried and true when, you, when people talk about, the, you know, the record company execs in the big conference room putting the big think together about how do we market this artist. And it, uh, it also like a thing that I find to be very antiquated, you know, and, and all things have become so much more streamlined and nimble, I think. But it was, you know, when those decisions were made in a in a room full of suits who had no connection to the culture or the music, and they're just thinking of trying to rationalize things in a way that made sense for them, you know, probably somewhere in L.A., God knows where. Yeah, of course. Uh, but but really wild. You know, and he had a in – an, in an, also in an era when he got a major um, – advance you know like hundreds of thousands of dollars when he was a teenager wow pretty and pretty interesting dude respected in the black community so what they were scared of was already the rugged man was respected they were scared as soon as the hood find out that i'm a white guy you know because i have a black sounding voice and it's bassy it's not like the eh, like the whiny shit it's like the bassy shit they 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 uh they thought oh what if the hood you know turns on him because he's white and this but the hood ain't like that the hood you know back then was about the culture and if you're great like I go into into the hood and rock they're like oh my this kid's incredible you know it wasn't like so so but the corporations and the labels they get nervous and you know so they you know they were all planning on trying to do something where like you know maybe we don't show his face maybe oh we don't show it and then once they respect him you know on on the major scale then we can let them know like it was like shit like that so i finally said nah, I'm, I'm i'm who i am i'm a white artist and, and i can show my goddamn face i'm better than the other rappers i can show my face wow. you know so. Does, i know is it safe to say that he's broken through that market or is it just kind of or is he still he's in an interesting spot you know because he um as he tells it, you know, he came up in a he came up in a time when it was all about skills, and he would go to house parties and he would rock house parties, and it was like, who's this, you know, who's this goofy kind of chubby white kid? And then he would rip it, and I mean, most of us from that era who are of the same age, you know, re- would reminisce about a time like that, you know, where you would 
go to things like bragging rights in New York, you know, right. where it was all about, that's what it was. That's what it was about. And you could just be a nobody and walk out and everyone was talking about this new, this new cat that just, you know, tore things down at bragging rights. So he came up in that time where he, he lived on Long Island and go to these house parties all over the city and tear down house parties and gain respect in a grassroots type of way. Um, and now he's, you know, and has, having done the major label thing and the, end of the indie label thing, and he still tours actively and makes his living primarily as a rapper. But there's a lot of guys like that now who are caught in that sort of nebulous world of, um, you know, you're not a household name, but this is what you do for a living. Right. Um, and that's a that's a big theme that we talk about in the film. There's a homeboy Sandman says it really well. There's this whole culture of people that make music for a living, and you don't, you know, people in their own neighborhood don't hear them on the radio and don't see them, you know, on TV, and and they hear these stories, you know, that hear stuff anecdotally, you know, firsthand of oh, well, so you're touring and you're doing all this stuff, but we don't hear what you're doing. Like, are you really doing it? You know what I mean? That yeah. that's got to be a struggle for a lot of those guys to to kind of come to grips with that. Um, and for some people, I can imagine, you know, when they when they're not in that world of like the tour and in the merch booth, you know, and interacting with the fans and stuff, and then you're home on your couch, that it's really kind of crushing and devastating when it's over. Right. Um, so we talk a lot about that stuff, but he is one of those people that seems to be in a, in a good place, you know, like he's a, he's truly an artist and he really actively and aggressively pursues his art. He's got a new record coming out. So, um, and he's one of those people that I think also was, was wise to kind of branch out into other things. He's got his hands in a lot of stuff and film. And, um, I know he does some, some commentating and boxing and, and, you know, does some writing and blogging and, um, I think in this day and age, you know, the more diversified you can be, the better. Right, of course. Uh, I mean, is it, it, the I guess is there the the equivalent of the artists um, that you just described? Not not Ari Uggerman, but other artists. Uh, you know, going home, sitting on their couch, and you know, I mean, just waiting for something. I guess for for the common folk or for the for the rest of us, that would be the equivalent of um, being unemployed and just like yeah. hanging out on our home and you know setting out a resume you know every week or once an hour and something and just hoping something comes true yeah and it's not um you know it's not exclusive to to rappers by any means i, I mean i think that's something that anyone that, that that's an independent artist can relate to you know musicians from any genre people that are freelance you know people that to work on films for a living people that you know, um, they're always waiting for that next phone call, you know, and, and the, the sort of fear and despair that can set in when the phone's not ringing. Um, I think that's why we hope, um, why people will find the story, um, engaging and interesting and and relatable because it's not about, it's not about like rappers and quotes, you know, like these big larger than life characters that you, that you see on, you know, it's not Jay-Z. It's like guys that do this to pay their rent. Um, So, and I, and, you know, Jay's own talks about it a lot. Um, 
um, in the many time in his book and in the many times we interviewed him, just demystifying the idea that a career in the music business is not what you think it is. Right. You know, and you gotta you gotta look behind the curtain a little bit and see what the what the business of entertaining is all about. So where do, where do we stand now with the project? We're about um, I would say we're about halfway through. We we got through a, a, a hefty chunk of the editing and my editor actually went in for back surgery uh, in October. So we were really happy with Act 1. We were about halfway through Act 2. We feel great about the story and what we have. Um, we just literally physically could not work on it anymore. Right. Um, and we, we hit this funny stage where we sort of had to see how his surgery went and how he was feeling. And he's just getting back into it now, which is great. Uh, I'm actually heading out to L.A. next week, and it looks like we're going to, knock on wood, be talking to um, Evidence as well as Merce. So I've just used the opportunity to continue to put feelers out, you know. Um, There's no reason to – I take the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross approach where you should always be shooting. Um, Nice. So uh, we just keep pursuing people while while I've got the time. You know, we can always plug some holes and – and, and make the story better, but we feel really good about it. So hoping um, to wrap it up, at least lock picture um, early in the new year here. What's the best way uh, our listeners could uh, follow what you're doing, uh, you know, keep up to date when uh, with the uh, with the film, and, you know, show their support? You can, I'm, I'm pretty avid on Twitter. Uh, my handle is uh, Paul Made This, Paul with a W. Um, and uh, the Kickstarter as well, for people that supported the film, I, I continue to update on Kickstarter um, because obviously we wouldn't have gotten this far without those folks. So I try to um, keep them in the loop. But Twitter's definitely the place where I'm uh, sort of most social, ironically. Um, and I and I try to keep people, you know, um, uh, in the loop about where we're going next or, you know, if we need a little help or what we're up to. So I, I just definitely don't want to be one of those projects that people gave money to and it just goes away. So um, it's another reason we're pressing, sort of self-imposing these deadlines that are tied to the festivals. Because even if we don't get in, um, we'll finish it, you know. And at the very least, I want to share it with the people that they donated their time and, and, and shared their stories so there's a good chance, um, regardless of what happens um, with submissions, we've had some interest in taking the taking the film on the road and doing sort of a mini tour, um, uh, which is an idea I really like, and booking some of the guys that are in the film um, who are would absolutely perform but um, don't really get asked to tour uh, that much, but uh, but I, that I think people would really dig seeing. So do a little mini tour where part of the film screens and, and then there's a show as well, which I think would be amazing. I mean, I'm an adult and I'm a rapper. But in, in a way, the reason I think that that seems like a contradiction is, uh, I mean, ra- rappers in general are like Peter Pan. There's so many dimensions to rap because there's so many types of people. It's the most undistilled presentation of a person in music. You know, there's no barrier. There's no, there's no, you're not holding a guitar. You know, you're not, you're not surrounded by band members. It's you and the audience. Right. It's hard to see how people transition now. I remember when I used to talk to people older than me that I've been doing it longer. They seemed very jaded and very bitter. 
And I never wanted to be that. Like, I just remember telling myself when I was, like, 21 or 22, I'm like, don't ever become that jaded, bitter, old rapper that's like, these young kids suck. Like, I never wanted to become that. And so that, I, I constantly remind myself of that now. And when I listen to hip-hop from kids that are a generation, you know, that weren't even born in 1990, when I listen to hip-hop from kids that weren't even born in 1990, I literally have to remind myself that, you know, they're... Uh, KRS or their LL or their Big Daddy Kane is literally like Lil Wayne, Eminem, Jay, and you have to remind yourself that that's not their fault. It's when they were born, and it's not necessarily a bad thing because for every you know, for every aspect of the art that they might not have mastered, they have something else mastered way stronger than I do. So it's like I really like to listen to kids now that are young in context of their experience in hip hop, as opposed to trying impose my and trying to impose my you know, old, kind of like jaded, you know, well, you know, ah, we know more about it than you. Like, I used to hate it when people did that to me. I really did, because I was a newbie once. Yeah. And I hated it when people did that to me, so I never want to do that to the kids coming up. Hey, yo, this the whole story. The whole truth is retarded. Here's how my whole bullshit career started. Back in 88, it was about battle rapping and shooting guns off and house parties. No complaining, no money, no fame. We still maintain 1991. Now my whole career started buzzing. Seen the stage shows, it gets the crowd jumping. And the kids come Boy Mercury, priority wanted me. Russell Simmons and nine other record companies sending limousines out to pick up my broke ass, feeding me steaks, buying me hookers. I hope this shit lasts. I was used to having no cash, I got gas. White trash, why they wanna sign my ass? 92, the whole industry was on my dick. I signed a Jive Records and fucked up the whole shit you're a shining star you're a superstar you're a shining star you're a superstar I'm stuck on a whack label. They say, see the way you behave. No wonder why the label hates you. They say he's a beast, he's a creature. Keep him in the other room, don't let him see Aaliyah. Ban him from the building, I don't want to see him either. He just don't know how to play the game right. He could be larger than life. They try to turn the label Caucasian. They sign me, Whitey Dawn, and the insane clown posse. And then they sign the Backstreet Boys and Britney. It's a pop label, what the fuck they want with me? Forget R. Kelly, I'ma do that, ripping out your cunt shit. I'll flip the fuck out. Did some dumb shit on some look at me. I got a gun shit. I ain't gonna give you that commercial one here. Your label sucked it. Tried to press charges against me. Sued me, blackballed me. My lawyer wouldn't even call me. Call me, call me. You're a shining star. You're a superstar. You're a superstar. You're a shining star. You're a superstar. You're a superstar. Star. 95, I'm broke out the ass, no dough. Watching everybody else around me blow. Trackmasters, Mob D, Keith Murray, Biggie and Puff. I'll admit it, I was jealous as fuck. I was so pathetic, no dough. Found an ugly chick with a no dough fetish. All my old hoes jetted. Went from hearing you won't be a star kid to hearing he ain't talented, he's garbage. Type of shitty kicks, there's no market. 96, I got a gun now, I remember. I was Jeff and Star. Back in with Pop Duke and my handicapped brothers and sisters, and we had no loot. That's when the feds came by and surrounded the house. They had automatic weapons and was pulling them out. And the moral of the story is all that glamour and glitch shit. Fuck that shit, I don't need it. You're a shining star, you're a superstar. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.